Let's be honest. In today's world, the security of your technology environment is a scary topic. It just feels like the threats always exceed our abilities to stave off those threats. Now, imagine you led a professional services organization that was responsible for helping companies stay secure. Who would want that job? Well, let's find out. I am Thomas Law, Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. And today, I will be joined by Sean Morton, the SVP of Professional Services at Trellix. So let's get this Insight Engine humming. Uh, Sean, welcome to Tectonic. And to start here, can you tell us a little bit about Trellix and your current role there? Well, thanks, Thomas. Yeah, Trellix is, like you said, a cybersecurity company. We focus on protecting enterprise customers with innovative technologies across the endpoint, across email, the network, the cloud, and more importantly, security operations. But we also provide advanced services to help organizations mature their cybersecurity knowledge and their effectiveness at what I like to call stopping the bad guys. Now, technically, Trellix was formed in early 2022. But it's really the rebranding of two industry giants that have been around for many years. I'm sure you've heard of McAfee uh, and FireEye. McAfee split their enterprise and consumer businesses, and the enterprise piece merged with FireEye products to form Trellix in 2022. Size-wise, we have roughly 40,000 B2B customers across the globe in pretty much every industry out there. Now, me specifically, as you mentioned, I lead our professional services organization. We're about 400 folks strong. We work closely with many of our customers to improve their overall cybersecurity posture with both Trellix technologies, but also our expertise in the cybersecurity domain. I've personally been in technology for about 20 years now, solely in cybersecurity for about the past dozen years or so. I am a technologist and a creator at heart. I've played many roles over the years, creating, designing, building, running products. But this past year provided me with an opportunity to lead our professional services organization at Trellix. Cool. Did you come to the McAfee ranks? Were you with McAfee before all this came together? So I actually, I came up through the ranks through uh, Mandian and FireEye. So uh, I, I was, I was okay. there in early 2013 and sort of led the journey into Trellix over those years. Okay. And then because McAfee was owned by Intel for a while, weren't they? Wasn't that it part was of their... for, for a short time. Yeah, they were, they were bought by Intel and then they, uh, they, they sold that business and McAfee went public uh, yeah. and then they came into Trellix. Yeah, I always thought that was a really weird fit. I never quite understood that that acquisition, to be honest with you. But um, McAfee's been a member of ours for for many many years historically, so I remember when that when that happened. But um, all right, so that's a good lay of the land here. And so I, I want to start with the state of IT security. And I was reading this article uh, on IT security trends, and it listed you know there are several critical challenges that are are facing you know your industry. There's this big topic of ransomware. In fact, we just had this. Um, conference in in vegas and you know caesars was being hit i think mgm got hit i mean obviously i mean even i mean companies like that that obviously take security incredibly seriously you know still compromised there's this issue of a lack of it professionals that this is you said you went into this about 12 years ago but there's still there's a struggle there with pipeline tool fatigue this one i thought was interesting because of all these tools that are out there. So, man, I don't know if you're part of the problem or part of the solution here. It's just like making it easier for people. There's a lot of complexity there. And so, you know, those who aren't close to the topic, you know, what do you, you know, for the chair you're sitting in, what are you know, some of the greatest threats to technology environments that, that you see enterprise facing right now? You know, like I said, I've been, I've been here for about a dozen years. 
solely focused on cybersecurity. During that time, I've had the opportunity to sit in the co-pilot seat. So, so Mandiant, Mandiant was really the big name at the time, mm-hmm. unveiling a lot of these threats. And I, I've seen that evolution in the, in the attacks and the threats over the years. A decade ago, when, when we were looking at this, attackers primarily focused their attention on very large enterprises. Mm-hmm. They used sophisticated tooling. They had dedicated teams of offensive talent. These attacks were highly, highly targeted against those specific organizations, specific infrastructure for a specific purpose. And why did they go after the big companies? Because there was more there there in terms of you know potential of what they're going to break into or just because there's more employees, it's easier? I mean, well, I'm just curious, why, why did they go after large historically? Yeah, it was it was a great question, and typically it was it was for espionage, it was for IP theft, uh, business disruption, yeah. and so, so we saw a lot of that. Okay, but what's interesting is in more recent years that's shifted a bit, yep. and we have a lot of threat intelligence from our research center, and we see attacks breaking out of the large enterprise, and they're shifting more towards down market businesses. And a big driver for that is, yeah. is what many of us hear as, as ransomware, and mm-hmm. and like you mentioned, ransomware has taken. These attacks have made them highly automated. They're much easier for bad actors to scale their attacks. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to go after much, much larger breadth of of, of the attack surface itself. So there's an ROI Uh, for them, even if the behavior is smaller. The the ROI is incredible. That that risk-reward model, it's it's made it very easy for them. You know, they can expand their reach and return with a simple click of a button now. Yeah. They even have some instances where it's ransomware as a service, where they're able to hire threat actors to attack organizations on their behalf. I hope they didn't use our book to set that business up, man. I feel really bad about that if they <laughs> learn how to do an as-a-service every, every, business. Every, everything is as-a-service now, right? Oh, my gosh. But the impact on these smaller organizations, it's so oh, devastating. so difficult for them right now. They, they don't have the budget. Yep. They don't have the talent inside the organization to appropriately defend against these sorts of attacks. But what's more concerning for me right now is, more importantly, we're seeing the real-life and physical impacts of these attacks in our everyday lives. And I'm sure you've, you've felt it a little bit, too, but... You know, in the U.S., we had a couple of years ago, we had Colonial Pipeline in the U.S., and it mm-hmm. impacted a lot of folks' ability to get gas from yeah. their cars or yeah. ransomware attacks that are shutting down school systems and, and, uh, and they're not able to operate or, or even hospitals, right? Yeah. And that, that's scary because it's to the point of where hospitals, they're unable to even intake patients sometimes into the ER because their systems are down. Wow. I've seen instances where they've had to turn patients away and patients have died en route to another hospital. Wow. So it's having actual physical impacts on us. And then if you think about what's happening right now in governments against governments and critical infrastructure and being used in modern warfare, we, we see prime examples of that in Ukraine right now and, and more recently in Israel. So uh, besides the complexity and the expansiveness of, the, of these actual threats themselves, you know, these organizations, they're, they're facing challenges, as you described, too many tools, too many alerts, and not enough cybersecurity talent to manage those effectively. And if you're in a large enterprise today, Yep. You have likely between 70 to 100 cybersecurity tools in your portfolio. Wow. Those are products you have to manage. Those are products that yeah. generate a ton of data, hundreds, if not thousands of alerts a day. So how do you prioritize that? How do you manage that? How do you know which alert to look at first? Yeah. And so you, we see a lot of organizations actually detecting stuff. They're missing it because it gets bled in with a bunch of other noise. Yeah. And then the biggest issue in the, in the industry today is there's a massive cybersecurity professional talent gap. Right now, it's been estimated it's around three and a half million experts, and it's growing. And mm-hmm. so the number of people available to fill in these vacant roles, it's just not there. So, you know, simply put, security teams are overwhelmed. 
with the amount of complexity in the tools, the amount of complexity in the attacks, and the lack of available expertise to address that complexity. And that's really the problem that I constantly think about and and the one that we're solely focused on uh, at Trellix, especially with my team in professional services. Yeah. So, I mean, you put a a lot of interesting context on the table there in terms of what's going on. And I understand that with new AI tools, this even gets more intensive, right? The bad guys have AI at their disposal Mm -hmm. that, again, is making it in some ways easier and cheaper for them to assert themselves here. So it's crazy. And I'm I'm curious, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but, you know, not that long ago, I remember reading a lot of uh, headlines where some of these cybersecurity startups were seemed to be like stalling, like they were kind of, you know, either, either laying off or their stocks were down or all that kind of stuff. But based on what you just described, right, which is a really kind of tight marketplace, right, for this talent. Do you have any perspective on sort of that that paradox, right? That we have this great need, and yet some of these firms were focused on it. I mean, was there a, an overbuilding of some of the capabilities or what what happened there? Yeah, it's um, we're seeing a lot of a lot of activity, obviously, in the cybersecurity vendor landscape right yeah. now. Um, you know, if you just look at a map of all the different vendors out there, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, if I if I was a chief information security officer, a CISO today, it's overwhelming to, to yeah. see who do I go after. And there are so many niche players in the market right now, too. So we're just seeing tons of startups pop up left and right on yeah. very, very specific, minute use cases oh, that might be good for a certain industry. Yeah. Um, but maybe they don't scale to the masses. Because of that, we're seeing tons of vendor consolidation happen right now, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're, you're seeing acquisition after acquisition of some of the larger players yeah. Kind of swooping up these more as capabilities rather than standalone organizations. Yeah. So what I hear there is it almost sounds like it's, it's a marketplace that's still sort of sorting itself out. Obviously, there's a huge need, a lot of demand. A lot of people are racing into it, you know, with software, with firms, whatever. And and yet you got to kind of sort it out because not everybody's going to make it, if you will, and or, or be you know, the right player there. So that makes sense to me. So that's the landscape. And it is pretty daunting for sure in terms of, you know, what's going on there. And let's move now to your role in professional services, right? So working for a technology company, the role of professional services is typically very focused on getting people up and running. That's what, you know, the implementation, integration, all right. And it's, I always say it's like the Marines model, then boom, we're moving on, right? We don't sit here and, and camp out typically. But what is the role that you have after the customers implemented? How does your PS organization engage with customers? Yeah. And we do spend a big part of our business enabling customers with mm-hmm. technology, both ours as well as, as others. And cybersecurity tools, they're complex. So there's a lot of work that has to happen to get them deployed, yeah. get them configured, sure. get them integrated, get them optimized. But I'll go back to what I just mentioned regarding that lack of talent and experts. We also spend a lot of our time helping enhance our customers' capabilities through advisory services and assessment services that may or may not even be tied to our products. Mm-hmm. And, and these can be things like doing a cyber risk assessment, you know, seeing how vulnerable they are to attacks, looking at their security operations and auditing their, their tools and their processes and, and building out what we call security operation centers, doing things like penetration tests. So how protected are you against certain types of attacks? And can we actually get in? That kind of gets into things called red purple team exercising. We also do some work with compliance too. So there's a lot of compliance around the cybersecurity space in terms of managing data. And we do a bit of work there too. We also act as extensions to our customers. We do full and part-time residency offerings mm-hmm. where you know our consultants will go in, they'll augment and enhance their security teams with you know, a variety of different skills. 
And this is definitely a big part of our business. It, it helps what I like to call us becoming a trusted advisor with the customer, mm-hmm. where we have those service folks embedded into their teams and their processes. And really, my, my goal is simple in a lot of this. It's whether it's with our own technologies or simply just being an expert that our customers can, can rely on and work with. We want to be able to elevate their security maturity. So that's our goal with every customer we work with is how do we take them from a B player to an A player? And we want to be known as that trust advisor, which again, with today's talent gap in cybersecurity is something that is highly, highly valued by our customers. So as I listen to you there, and I'm curious, do you have any managed type offers? Because you have residencies, you have these you know, advisory. Do you have anything like an ongoing managed type service where you'll say, hey, we'll actually do some of the ongoing security administration for you as a managed type offer? We do a little bit of that with some of our residencies. So we'll, we'll insert them into their security operations centers and we'll help on-site manage a lot okay. of our tech. But we also, we, we do a lot of partnerships with folks too. So we have a number of global partnerships where it's called MDR. So it's managed detection and response. Mm-hmm. You might traditionally more hear it as like an MSSP or MSP. We have a lot of partners where we go in certain geos to help us to scale that way. Yeah. So as I listen to you describe, you know, what your team is doing, and I'm, I'm curious what the perspective is within Trellix. So, you know, you're a technology company, right? You're a software company, and you look at most software companies, that's what they want to be. They say, hey, look, I'm selling software product. That's what scales. That's what I am. And everything you described was all the mushy, labor-intensive stuff around that, right? And so every kind of sentence you spoke there is like, man, that's another expensive consultant or professional service person that's got to be involved, right? Yet, yet, dropping back to the environment you described, you're in a marketplace where customers desperately need help and the expertise. It's super important that you provide a complete thought here, not just, hey, I got some great software. No, there's a partner over there that can help you figure it out. That's really not what I do. I'm the product company. Inserting yourself here, you're adding tons of value and allowing you to be that trusted advisor. So how does Trellix sort of reconcile this challenge of, yes, we want to be a software product company, but our marketplace requires us to have these, you know, professional services, consulting services, et cetera. You know, how, what's the thinking internally on that? Yeah. And it's, it's always a balance, right? Yeah. Balance or battle. Yeah. You want to clarify? Balance and, <laughs> and, 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 balance and battle okay. for sure. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're obviously very much focused on how we operate the business, yeah. very much focused on gross margin, yeah. how we deliver those services. At the end of the day, I think we're seeing a transformational shift of that to driving renewals and driving up. MPS scores with our customers. So we're definitely starting to see that shift less from, well, billings and revenue and and gross margin are all important. We're starting to measure the business as well as like, hey, how's our renewal rate doing for those that have engaged with us from our services perspective? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just asked this because I think a lot of people who are in that professional services chair, like you are, feel that tension of, you know, I got a PS business, and but my company is not a consulting company. It's not what they want to be. They want to be a software company. And again, I think most software executives, their dream company is like the software does everything. It installs itself. It configures itself. The customer can run it without our help. I mean, that is the dream profile of, of a company that I want. But the reality is that especially B2B, especially in the co- complex area like you're in, that is just not the reality. It's, you know, it's you, not a reality. Yeah, it's, no. uh, again, cybersecurity... The tools aside, it is such a complex landscape because you have to remember the bad actors, they are trying a thousand different ways to break in. Yep. They need to be successful one time right. and you have to defend against all those a thousand or at least be able to detect them yep. and then quickly respond to it. So yeah. 
the, the ways that they can do that are incredibly complex yep. and you need talent to be able to support that alongside the tools. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about you know, cybersecurity, which is, a, again, challenging. I want to talk about another challenging topic, and that is the current economic environment for SaaS companies, which you are a SaaS company, right? So in 2022, most you know, private and public SaaS companies took a really big haircut in their valuations. We just took the Q3 snapshot of the TSI Cloud 40. Those valuations have not come back from a year ago. Say so they were lower than they were on average a year ago. It doesn't look like interest rates are going down you know, anytime soon, maybe not higher, which would be good news, but they're not going down. So how is that current economic environment impacting your priorities at the company as a SaaS company? Yeah, yeah obviously something we are very much focused on as a business. The cybersecurity market itself has been, I'd say it's been viewed a little differently for a long time and for mm-hmm. a while it kind of felt untouched by the dips in the market. Um, As you mentioned before, we saw startups and funding popping up all over the place for new cybersecurity companies. And a lot of the valuations were just purely focused on aggressive growth at all costs. And a lot of those large IPOs that we saw were being driven on big multipliers on that growth number. Mm -hmm. I definitely say that has shifted in the past two-ish years, even in the cybersecurity space. We've, of course, seen uh, the IPO market slow down. Say profitability balance against growth is now much more important. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing the market start to adjust valuations for that. I think interest rates are playing a big, big part of that. Most interestingly, we're we're seeing a lot of strategic acquisitions driving consolidation in the cybersecurity market. For example, we just saw Cisco and that massive buy of Splunk for 28 billion in September. Just one of many examples, but we're also seeing tons of smaller tuck-ins, like I said, that are starting to consolidate the, the market itself. Yeah, I definitely expect the market to continue to consolidate over the next decade. Mm-hmm. I, I see more strategic buys and for profitability to become more of an increasingly important factor in those valuations. Yep. At Trellix, our focus is on ma- maintaining a balance on profitability with continued investments for growth. And you know, specifically for me, for professional services, my focus is all about how to drive that rigorous operating practices that, mm-hmm. that schedule our customers. But doing so with with maintaining a heavy emphasis on the margin itself. Yeah. And I think the rule 40, the rule 40 plus probably, that balance with a greater emphasis on profitability, it, it really seems to be the new norm and expectation going forward. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that you're a very important sort of case study on this topic of profitability because, again, you're in a market that clearly investors are going to look at cybersecurity and say, yeah, that's a growth market. There's just no doubt about it, right? So it's not like you're in a market that somehow is plateauing or shrinking. So you are in a growth market and you're growing, right? And so all those tailwinds, but still this new normal has even come to your market, which is investors saying, look, I don't want growth at any cost. You got to show me that you've got economies here. You got to show me that you can actually be gap profitable. I mean, you got to have a story there because if you don't, it's going to cost you in valuation. And so I, I really feel we're, we've got to this place in enterprise software that unless you maybe are an AI startup, anybody else, classic enterprise software, there's a different set of rules. And this whole growth at any cost is not part of the playbook anymore, regardless of how high growth your particular segment is. I really think that's true. So I appreciate you you know, sharing that. So I want, I want to move to futures. So I start with the future of professional services. So from your perspective, you know, how does the PS function within a software company, technology company change over the next you know, three to five years? What do you think is happening there? Well, the first trend I see happening is is further investment in maturity and customer success, mm-hmm. really focusing on driving customer adoption and outcomes. And as that continues to mature in a lot of organizations, I see professional services becoming one of several delivery vehicles to support those motions themselves. Mm-hmm. I see professional services being alongside education services, technical support, and, and then your actual customer success folks. Yep. And 
know, at TSA, I know you guys have been discussing this a lot in recent years, but over time, I expect those organizations to blur and possibly yeah. even combine. And as part of that change, I see the PS success model shifting more towards renewals and MPS metrics rather than, again, just pure on the bookings, billings, and gross margin. Yeah. Another trend I see, and then one that gets me really excited, is just the growing role of technology to make PS more effective, more efficient at delivery. Mm-hmm. And at Trellix, we build a lot of custom tools to help us scale these services to our customers. Now, for example, we have a really fantastic health check tool and a service that we can run against your purchase solutions to make sure, are you properly deployed? Are you properly configured? Are you, are you maximizing the full value of your investment with us? Mm-hmm. Now, we used to do those checks manually, and it just didn't scale. So now we've spent investment, and we built a tool that allows us to automatically assess virtually, recommend improvements to the customers at scale. But related to tech, too, I obviously see the most opportunity right now with AI. Mm-hmm. AI is, of course, the buzzword of the past year, and there's definitely still a lot to shake out in that market. But the potential I see for both internal efficiencies in the business and external service delivery they're tremendous and something we're very much keeping an eye on. So let me click into some things that you said there. So starting with convergence, you're right. I mean, we've been writing about this for several years and TSI, I think in general, we're starting to feel that these service silos that we have, support versus CS, CS versus PS, you know, education, et cetera, maybe even a separate MS managed services organization, that that has served us well historically in terms of you know optimizing those service motions, managing the profitability effectively, et cetera. But what was once a feature is now becoming a bug and it's starting to slow us down. And you said it, right? You said, hey, I really see that PS is going to be part of a customer success motion, you know, making the customer successful. And it's not, I got this PS motion over here, and then I have this separate customer success motion over there and a separate mm-hmm. support motion over there. It's got to be one thought about how we are helping the customer get the value they need out of our technology. But there's not a lot of that convergence actually happening yet, I can tell you, because we benchmark this, we look at this, we survey on this all the time. It may be one of the most dramatic recent examples. Jim Roth, who heads up uh, president of customer success at Salesforce, uh, one of our conferences said, yeah, we're bringing CS and SS together. I mean, that's a pretty big move, you know, dramatic move at Salesforce, but it's still, and I hear more people talking about that move, you know, they're starting to talk about it, but actually bringing these distinct organizations together isn't, you know, happening as much. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, sort of timelines here on convergence or maybe why why are people holding back? Yeah. I mean, we're moving pretty aggressively at Trellix and we're looking at it more from a portfolio perspective. So we're, we're launching a unified portfolio for the customer to engage with yeah. services. And we're doing it through a, a token-based model uh, that we're going to be launching next year. So we're moving quickly on it. We're not combining the organizations yet. We're, we still are kind of sister organizations. But in terms of the customer experience and driving effective customer outcomes, we're already starting to do that. I, I agree. I think we're kind of leading edge a little bit on that from what I'm seeing in other places. But uh, I'm hoping we in, in 24 or later in the year, show some good outcomes and, and maybe present that uh, TSA at some point. Well, I, I know you're familiar with our research. For those people listening that aren't, when it comes to services convergence and, and some of the things we've published, one of the first moves to make on the chessboard is to rationalize the portfolio, which is what you mm-hmm. just said. So yep. instead of having all these different service lines with their own portfolio of services, talking to a customer, confusing the customer, and we see a lot of overlap gets created there, right? There's a PS offer that looks a lot like a CS offer, or there's a CS offer that looks like a support offer. And so 
that's the first winning move for sure is to rationalize that. And you said, you know, we're moving to a token based model. I, I know what that means, but can you explain that to the audience for those that may not be familiar with that? Sure. So very simply, we're enabling customers to buy different packages of tokens, credits, yep. uh, units, and they can use those ad hoc anytime to say, hey, I need some on-site education services, and that's three tokens. Mm-hmm. Um, I need an on-site PS person for three weeks to help me with a deployment or a configuration. That's five tokens. And so it's, it's sort of kind of choose your own venture because what we're seeing is a lot of times when customers purchase solutions from us, when they're signing that contract, they don't quite know yet what they need. And so we're giving them some flexibility to that rather than have to do a statement of work and a customized contract every single time they need something. Yeah. So that's definitely our perspective on emerging best practice. It's not common yet, but a lot of companies are chipping on that. If anybody listening, if you're interested in that, Bo DiMuccio on our team has a lot of great research on that topic on how PS organizations are doing it. But you know, ES organizations have moved to that model for some of their stuff. But I think it's a winning play. TSI moved to that model for all of our advisory years ago. We went from a classic style-based you know, model. If somebody needed a workshop or something, and we moved that all to a credit model with a premium offer. And you know, I think it works better for everybody, quite frankly, for the provider and I think for the, the customer that, that needs to consume the, the help. So you see that in the future. On the technology side of it, so convergence is one of the trends. You know, I cut my teeth in professional services. That's where I started. So I have a lot of you know, empathy for, for PS. You know, I really feel that software slash AI is going to eat through this function in a big way, in a big way. Because you look at most PS organizations, you, you know, you told that journey of, hey, we used to do this manually, then we stood up a tool, and good PS organizations do that. It's usually kind of a slow burn, you know, watching them do that after, oh, hey, why are we doing this manually? And then we get a tool, and then we kind of get a thing of tools. PS is not, I think, really known for tons of technology innovation to optimize its internal stuff. It is still very much a brain-on-a-stick model. I would assert that, right? And I think that that is going to change. It's going to be about smart people using unbelievably smart tools in a very different way. It's going to be exciting, I think, to watch, but it's going to be transformational. I agree. And like, like I said, I'm a technologist at heart, so I'm, uh, I'm very excited about the yeah, future. Yeah, there, but, it, but it is going to be, there's going to be some gnashing of teeth in a lot of PS organizations as this happens, I think, initially, but it's, I think it's going to be super exciting. So we covered AI, which is good, and in, in, in how it's going to impact PS organizations. I definitely wanted to ch- check that box with you. Uh, I want to move to personal careers because I've, you know, I was looking at your profile on LinkedIn, and you have held a role in, in product experience, which I, you know, it's, it's an interesting role. So, so how does that experience shape how you approach professional services? And, w- and what was that role in product experience? Well, in all the work I've done over the years, I've built many products, built many apps. I've designed them. I've built them. I've, I've always held a special place and focus for UX design and really that end user experience. I think that's a untapped opportunity in the enterprise industry as a whole. We're starting to see a lot more investment there over the last few years, but but we still have a long way to go when you compare it to a lot of our consumer Mm -hmm. experiences. I truly believe that great experiences produce great outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I think that also translates from product experiences to service experiences. So, you know, sometimes products don't work or they don't integrate as as intended into your your environment. And in many ways, professional services, we, we are the white glove team that masks or addresses those problems for customers. And it's, it's also the team that gets to work on those really hard problems and make them easy for the customers. So, you know, for us, fortunately, we have an incredibly passionate service consultant team that cares deeply about our customers. I have many in my organization that have been working for the same customer for years. 
and have created those really strong relationships. Mm-hmm. Many of them are even viewed as part of the actual customer team themselves. I mean, they, they literally sit on site in the security operations center with them. They have a badge of the actual customer. So when a customer views us as a team member or a partner, mm-hmm. rather than just a paid consultant, that to me is really the foundation for a great experience. And now, at the end of the day, we want our customers to be amazingly successful in carries the network. You said something which I believe in greatly, which is that B2B companies have not, in general, right, have not mastered the customer experience the way the B2C companies have. I think there's still a lot of us are on a journey. You know, we say, hey, we're customer-centric, et cetera, but we don't really spend enough uh, time and energy really thinking about the customer experience like you're describing and are we delighting them is it easy for them or or are we stressing them out too much are we making it harder for them than it needs to be but i really believe that that is going to be a winning capability over the next let's say five years for b2b companies i think we've gotten away with kind of you know doing okay on customer experience because some of our technologies just people needed them and they kind of had to put up with it and we've solved it a lot of the bump in the grind we've solved by putting a service you know, wrap around it to ease that. But I think that this is going to be, again, a capability that the B2B companies are going to lean into more. And the ones that figure that out first, I think customers are going to run to it. I really do. It's going to be one of those things that separates you. agree. It is going to be a differentiator between good companies and great companies going forward. And, and there have been numerous even studies out there where customers or vendors who have great experiences get much greater return uh, for their yeah. for their customers and for the business yeah. as a whole. So yeah. even that investment profile is yeah. there. Today. I was d- doing a little noodling this, this past week on the future structure of tech companies. And I wrote this diagram about kind of the current classic structure of a tech company, which is you have a product team that will make a promise. They'll say, hey, I've got this product and it can do this. And sometimes they actually get that a little wrong. They don't really know. But anyway, they make a promise. Marketing then overpromises. Sales then comes in and makes up a new promise on the fly <laughs> to get the deal. And then services comes in to make that customer whole, right? <laughs> and so to deliver whatever promise, right? And, and ideally not yes. fail because of all these things that happened before. In that kind of handoff, right? That fire brigade handoff from the product over the wall to marketing, over the wall to sales, over the wall to here's what I actually sold is the classic B2B enterprise technology model. And I think that that is going to change. And again, I think AI is a big disruptor here because AI operates differently. It operates differently in terms of how intimate you are with the customer. AI is unlike any other piece of software before. If you have an AI solution and it's not generating a definable, you know, defendable ROI, it's not in there. And we've sold a lot of technology historically where you know, you say, hey, it's going to save you this, save you this, blah, blah, blah. And two years later, it's like, you know, it didn't really save me all that. AI is going to be, I mean, you're either delivering that and you're going to have to be really intimate with the customer and their environment and all these things. And I just think we're ready for sort of a little different, you know, set of handoffs here. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, the, the AI topic is, uh, it's such a loaded term right now too. And there's some interesting stuff that I, I think professional services can both take advantage of and use to help mm-hmm. deliver outcomes for customers. I mean, what's interesting with AI too is it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of sure. different people. But I think what's gotten everyone excited over you know the last year is really LLMs, the, those large language models. So that's where you hear the you know the folks like ChatGPT or Google Bard or Anthropic or AWS Bedrock. I mean, that's what people are really thinking about when they think about AI yeah. now. They're really, really good at predicting and generating text. So 
we've been even thinking about like, what are the use cases within our professional services organization? And I think given that, when you think about AI and text generation with services, most people gravitate towards chatbots. Mm -hmm. That's that's sort of like the first tier that people all think about. And I think we've all experienced past versions of chatbots in the technologies we use. And I don't know, at least for me, I hate them, right? They've they've always been frustrating and not very helpful. You know, you're talking to a computer, felt very robotic and structured, doesn't get you the answer you're looking for. But I think what's great about these new LLM-based AIs is how quick and fluid the conversations feel. So I don't know, for me, like the next generation of chatbots for services, I think they're going to allow customers to actually have a conversation, get answers the way they expect them to be structured. Absolutely. And think about it today too, like even from a customer's perspective, if you have a question about a product, finding the right answer can be really hard because one, it might be be behind several paywalls. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not easily Googleable. It might be buried in a user manual somewhere. It might be answered by some other customer in a community post, or maybe it's sitting in a KB article somewhere behind your support community, or maybe it's buried in some other hard to reach place. So what LLMs are really great at is taking all that information, summarizing the output for a user based on that exact question that they have. So, you know, I'll put it, since we're talking about AI, I'll put a a plug-in for this research journey that we're doing this on AI, right? And how companies are organizing for AI and also specific use cases. And this is a topic we're super committed to. And like you said, there's a lot of hype. We're really focused on what are people really doing with it now? And there are just, I'm working mm-hmm. with members on case studies. I'm working on my fourth one right now. I just did one with Dell that I'm, I'm writing up. And these use cases are just amazing, right? In terms of ROI, in terms of better customer experience, in terms of better employee mm-hmm. experience, like you're saying, just making things so much easier. So it, it is really exciting. And again, if, if you're not plugged into that research journey, anybody listening, you should be. But I'm, I'm going to put an example on the table of how AI is going to fundamentally change the way we operate. So this expert from Dell I was interviewing, and they were talking about how they're using AI in the support case, a smart tool to help next best action for their support agents. And it's a huge accelerator for them, right? And it's, I mean, all kind of ROI. But one of the things that this woman shared with me, you know, think you can, you've been in technology a long time. So think how broad Dell's portfolio is, right? All these different products, mm-hmm. not just built internally, but through acquisition, right? So I got this massive portfolio and they are quickly, you know, realizing that they need to rationalize the product telemetry across all those products because to feed into these AI models, right? We need the same type of telemetry in a sense coming out, same format, whatever. As you know, it's not right now. No company, you know, you have product teams, they go off and go, oh, I'll put this telemetry and oh, I'll put that one. And services has suffered from that forever, right? Because you're like, oh God, this product doesn't tell me what I need or it tells me in a different way and my folks have to learn this. It's a nightmare, right? And we've never fixed that problem. We've never tried to rationalize that across our products. AI is going to be a forcing function. And we're going to wake up in a world where like, oh my gosh, every one of my products throws off the same kind of telemetry. And even if AI wasn't in place, it just made your life easier. And PS, it just made support's life easier. It made everybody's life easier. So that's a simple example of how it's going to pressurize us to do things differently. And I think in a way that ends up being much better for us and the customer, that there was just not enough pressure in the system historically to fix something like that. Yeah. And I think the best part about AI right now is that we don't know yet what the full possibilities are. And that, right. that's what energizes me yeah. about it. I, I like to think about it like we are with AI today back to when the first iPhone launched. Yeah. And when I look back at that time, overnight, it created this concept of an app framework. And from there, we've seen completely new industries and ways of experience in the world come yeah. to life. So, I mean, think about like the gig economy or augmented reality or mobile payments, just to name a couple. We didn't have those before yeah. before the iPhone. 
So I, I expect the same sort of thing to happen with AI. So it'll be interesting to see in you know, a couple of years, one year, five years, how professional services is transformationally changed with that with that capability. Yeah, you know, the example I give in terms of the impact of, of AI is I was in Silicon Valley in the 90s when I saw, you know, this, this guy I was working for called me into this, his office and he said, I want to show you something. And he bring, I was working in Silicon Graphics. He brings up the screen and he takes me to this web page, right? And using Mosaic. And I forget whose page it was. And, and, he, and it has some links, whatever. And he clicks and he goes to this other page, you know, somewhere other parts of the world. And I'm like, whoa, like, how did you do that? Right. It, w- it was like, for folks listening to this, you're going to say that was impressive. Yes. That was super impressive. <laughs> it was, it was. And it was like, I, I could go and like read this person's page about this. You know, it was just like, but at that point in time, and for many, many, many months, you know, after that, I never really thought about the, the business impact of that connectivity in the internet. There wasn't a bunch of natural use cases where I'm like, oh my God, this is going to change the way I'm, I'm working. AI is completely different because it is out there now. And again, I'm doing these case studies, but I see business case after business case after business case, huge ROIs. That's they're real right now. These aren't futures. These aren't like oh, and like five years AI is going to be. This is stuff that we call below the waterline. You can do it right now. And so to me, that is the difference between the unveiling of the internet, you know, in the nineties, and the unveiling of AI capabilities today. Is that we are going to this thing is going to come like a tsunami in a way that's going to make the internet how it rolled out look like glacier pace. I completely agree. I think there was a stat on ChatGPT first to 100 million users or a yeah. million users and how fast that was compared to a lot of the other yeah. the other disruptive uh, technologies we've seen yeah. over our lifetime. I read a headline that it was like, oh, chat GTP users are slowing down and logins are going down. And, you know, sort of basically the gist of the article is it was kind of like a cute toy. And I'm reading this thing going, man, whoever wrote this does not get it. <laughs> they do not get <laughs> what's going on here. I'm going to give you one final question here. So you attended Bucknell, which is has an undergraduate student body, I believe, of like around 4,000 students. My cousin taught at Bucknell years ago. I was on that campus. It's beautiful. But I'm curious, you know, what do you feel are the advantages of attending a smaller university? I've never asked any, any guests this question. I went to a very large university. I went to Ohio State. So this is the polar opposite of your experience. So, so what are some of the advantages there? Yeah, so a little, little, little different than Bucknell. Well, I will definitely caveat your question by saying uh, I had the opportunity to attend both a small school and a large-ish school. So I was, I was at Bucknell as an undergraduate, but then I went to University of Connecticut for my, my graduate studies. So I've been able to somewhat experience both worlds, but also undergraduate and graduate. Different attendance yeah. is, is, is very yeah, different. You have different, uh, different expectations. So yeah. there are definitely certainly and certainly pros to each, but for a smaller school, for me, it was all about the intimacy, those personal connections with my, my peers and, and really my professors as a whole. Um, so at Bucknell, I was a computer science and engineering major. I had the opportunity to build really strong rapport with a very small group of students that we were effectively in every single class together. It was a group of about 30 of us. We had the same professors in multiple courses. So it really felt like a tight-knit family going on an education journey together yeah. rather than me as like a number in a class. And, you know, I still have connections to this day that it, with a lot of those folks. Yeah. So I will definitely throw my love for Bucknell yeah. out there. Incredible school. Probably some of the best four years of my life. Truly that it, it, close-knit community of students and faculty and, and, and something I'll, I'll cherish forever. But uh, I have two young boys. I hope that they have the opportunity to attend a school like that if it's Bucknell one day. But 
Although I, I do question with the insane cost of school these days, I just hope I'll be able to afford it. Yeah, I'm glad you sh- you share that, and you know, especially you know the relationship with the university or with professors. My son went to a smaller school. My daughter went to UCLA, massive school, right? And I saw that in their experiences, right? The smaller school you get to build that. I asked that question because I know there's people listening to their kids, whatever, they maybe they went to a large school, they didn't have a small school experience. And, you know, what did you see is, is some of the edges. And that's definitely, I think, a, a, a huge one, right? So if that's something that you're, you're looking for, there's a lot of value in, in finding some of them. There's so many great, you know, smaller schools out there that people can take advantage of. So cool. Well, hey, thanks, Sean, for coming in so much for this discussion. I really enjoyed it. And we covered a lot of different topics. And I always like to end with the question of the day. And so here it is. Your customers expect your products and platforms to be secure. Is your department doing everything it can to help meet that expectation? Cheers, everybody. 